Okay. Without further ado, I'd like to have Stephanie White uh, introduce our speaker today. Stephanie is an assistant professor of pediatrics, and she is our associate dean for diversity and inclusion and a representative to the AAMC for the same. And Stephanie, come tell us about your colleague. Good morning, everyone. It's so nice to see so many people here. When I was um, preparing the final touches for today, I was like, what if we run out of room? Well, it's never really happened before, but I see lots of people standing in the back, so I'm really excited that you guys are so interested in this topic. Um, first, I'd like to thank the Department of Medicine and Surgery for allowing us to use their time, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to Dr. David Acosta, who's the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer of the Association of American Medical Colleges. And so some of you may remember the AAMC as being you know, the process that you use to apply to med school, to apply to residency. But the AAMC is a community that consists of 151 U.S. medical schools, 17 Canadian medical schools, and also 400 teaching hospitals across the country. It serves more than 173,000 faculty members, 89,000 medical students, 129,000 residents, and more than 60,000 graduate students and postdoc research. Um, fellows. So, Dr. Acosta is a California native. He received his bachelor's degree in biology from Loyola University. He earned his medical degree from the University of California Irvine School of Medicine and completed his family medicine residency at the Community Hospital of Sonoma County in Santa Rosa, California. He went on to do a faculty development fellowship at the University of Washington. Dr. Acosta joined the AAMC from the University of California Davis School of Medicine where he served as a Senior Associate Dean for Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, the Associate Vice Chancellor for Diversity and Inclusion, and the Chief Diversity Officer for the UC Davis Health System. He previously served at the University of Washington in similar fashions, and he also started the first Rural Health Fellowship Program for the Tacoma Family Medicine Program, which is the only one like it, of its kind in the nation. His recent publications, presentations, and speaking engagements touch upon all aspects of diversity and inclusive work within academia and medicine. And we've been fortunate to have Dr. Acosta visiting our campus for the past two days. We've kept him very busy meeting with Geisel students, staff, and faculty, and he'll have a chance to meet with some of our DH colleagues today. And as you may recall, this um, presentation was scheduled for January, but there was a snowstorm, and so we had to cancel it. But I was telling a colleague last night that that was kind of a blessing in disguise because I can't think of a better way of starting my term as Associate Dean for, of Diversity and Inclusion than having these conversations today. So I want to thank you all for attending and ask that you join me in welcoming Dr. Acosta as he presents his talk, Emerging as an Equity-Minded Academic Health Center Through Inclusion Excellence, The Next Generation of Diversity Work in Academic Medicine. Good morning, everybody, and thank you for being here. Um, this is kind of overwhelming, which I think is just uh, a wonderful thing to see. i got to say that uh, my visit so far has been very gracious, and it's just wonderful to be here. Um, I feel very welcomed and, uh, by the community, the family um, that you all represent, and so it's a, really an honor to be here to be able to have this discussion with you. Um, before I get started, in the spirit of today's uh, Nutrition Award sort of thing, um, we kind of started it also last night, 
because what we did healthy last night, instead of having buffalo wings, we had buffalo cauliflower. And I have to say that was the kind of the first time I've ever had that. And I did question what it was. And people started saying, well, you know buffalo wings, right? And I just couldn't get my mindset wrapped around enough about, so you're telling me chicken is replaced by cauliflower or that kind of thing? But they kept saying, yeah, but it's boneless, too, so it's good. So, so in that spirit, it was theirs. So thank you for being here. My job today, I think, is basically, as um, what I've been doing over the last days, really hopefully um, leave you with something to really begin talking a little bit deeper about diversity and inclusion, but also the thing that's usually, that is now starting to surface more and more throughout other campuses as well, which I'm a pleasure to see it, is just the concept of equity and how does that belong in kind of what we talk about with diversity and inclusion. And so we've come a long way, I think, of getting diversity on the map, but I'm also going to commit that sin and tell you that diversity is not enough. And so if you forget everything I'm going to tell you today, I want you to walk away with that, but I want you to ask yourself the question now, why am I saying that? My hope is we kind of walk along, walk you along this talk that ultimately you'll be able to catalyze some ideas. And as I talk about this, my hope is that you also think about yourselves, so the things that I begin to mention. Your homework right now is a saint's hope. How does Dartmouth fit with this? How does Geisel fit with this? How does, how does the, the medical center fit in with any of this stuff? Does it reflect of, because the idea, this all starts with personal reflection, but also group and institutional reflection in order to begin doing the work that we need to do. So let me start out with this. Um, I've been a chief diversity officer at a couple of institutions now. I've been working in diversity work for quite some time now. And so, but as a chief diversity officer, I always remember uh, a couple of things. Whenever I talk about diversity and inclusion, um, I think about metaphors. And the metaphor that comes to my mind is this one. Um, and so when you look at this, we're looking at a bridge that doesn't look very safe, right? It'll probably get you to the other side, probably. But it takes, uh, gonna take a lot of courage, a lot of ingenuity, a lot of balance um, to get across that, and also you need to be risk averse to get there. So in doing diversity work, I use this as a metaphor because what I find is a lot of academic health centers, there are some people that are eager to cross across, go across that because those are the extremists. You know, they really like extreme sports and they're doing anything for a challenge and they love getting over that side. They decided to take this bridge. If you look at the one on the right, it's a little bit, it's falling apart a little bit. You know, That's a little bit more scarier as well. But in doing this work, when we try to say we need to embed diversity and inclusion in everything that we do, because it needs to be a strategic imperative. We've been saying that for a number of years. This is the thing that I've, I've witnessed when, I've, when, I've, when I talk about this with our leadership, when I talk about it with our faculty, uh, both at institutions, but also now that I go around and I visit all the medical schools and begin talking about diversity and inclusion. And usually what happens is that they say, well, do I really need to cross that bridge? Things are fine the way they are on this side of the bridge. But if I decide to go across that bridge, will people follow me looking at how dangerous it looks? And if I go and I start crossing it, and if I fall, is somebody going to be there to protect me and bring me back? Can I turn around and come back sort of thing? And so one, bridges like this are really important um, because, again, one of the things that I also see is this cultural divide that happens you know, amongst us and within institutions. And by the cultural divide, if you look at it up in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it basically is this virtual barrier that ultimately uh, is because of cultural differences that people have. 
And those cultural differences, unfortunately, what they do is they, they lead to, they don't lead to harmonious exchange of ideas, conversation, or dialogue as well. So crossing the culture divide becomes an extremely important thing, I think, still in our academic medical centers because we don't do a very good job of doing that. And I would say what I would love to see academic health centers do, and as I go around the country and as my unit also tries to help institutions cross that, that divide, and also I help support a lot of our uh, chief diversity officers and diversity officers are all institutions. You know, I talk a lot about what we need to do is change the way that bridge looks, that people are willing to cross it. So if you look at this bridge, basically the infrastructure looks much stronger, it looks much safer, and it actually looks something that can basically hold quite a number of people and can also survive bad inclement weather. This is when I spent my time in Washington State. This is at the farthest northwest corner of Washington State, which is a peninsula that sticks out into the Pacific Ocean. And there's usually the mildest wind through there is about 20 miles an hour on a good day. But you can understand there's some gale forces there. But this bridge remains there and allows you to, again, get to the other side across that big abyss. And I'm saying that what our institutions need to do is begin thinking about their infrastructure and asking yourself, do you have it in place? Do you feel safe enough to get to the other side? Begin having some of those difficult dialogues. But more importantly, do you feel safe to get to the other side to really look at yourselves? To really look in the mirror and asking yourself, how are we putting diversity and inclusion into practice? The other important piece about this bridge is that there's also, you have support people in place. You know, Stephanie White is now somebody who can lead you across that along with other champions that can be identified throughout your institutions to basically help people cross it to get to the other side. Because it's not impossible. There's still going to be some people scared to go across it, but the reality with the help, with the support, people can traverse it and also even come back if necessary. So what I'm going to talk about today that's really important is that my hope is to cover three different areas really quickly with you, just to kind of set the tone of why this is important. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about the institutional landscape, what's kind of going on out there, not only just in Hanover, but everywhere else. But I'll bring, uh, if we need to talk about that in order to be is here. Number two, uh, when I hear people talk about inclusion, you know, I really see people talking about the 35,000 foot level about inclusion. And I'm going to try to convince you to take a deeper dive to really understand the benefits of, of this. There's been a lot of literature and research done in it, not in our field of healthcare, but you have to sometimes go outside your own comfortable box to find out what's going on because in business and in education, they've been studying inclusion since 1990. And healthcare has been very slow to basically jump on board with this sort of thing, but there's a lot of things we can learn from looking at some of the successes and some of the research that's already done. And then we'll talk about this notion about practicing conscious inclusion and what that really means and how each of us can do that, and then land up finally talking about what is an equity-minded you know, academic institution. So a picture's worth a thousand words. I gotta tell you, in the last two years, um, this has been relentless, this has been challenging, and even if it has not happened here in Hanover, the reality, because you have so many students come from an out-of-state, you have to appreciate the fact that even though you may have a safe community here, understand that staff, faculty, and students have family elsewhere in the country that have been victims and survivors of some of the incidents that have happened atrociously across the United States in the past 15 to 18 months. And it basically has ramifications because it affects people's performance if you're distracted because family members are distraught. And I, 
you know, and as a diversity dean, I always remember students saying, you know, the reality is my family is still expecting me to come home and drop everything, which is not the mindset of faculty within medical schools. And that's where the disbalance and the dysfunction started creating, where we start seeing our students so worried about their families getting calls every day that they don't really understand why they're not coming. But these types of events were really critical um, for, for all of us. And so they do touch us all and it does impact us. But not only that, it's probably that time looking at this made me think about the challenges that are faced by specific students. And I include faculty and staff here uh, that have been historically excluded from opportunities in higher education. You know, what came to light especially over the last couple of years, is the fact that you know, we're living with an institutional policies and structures, expectations, unspoken rules within our academic institutions that are perpetuated, you know, double standards, and sometimes, in some cases, triple standards for people that come from historically underrepresented groups as well. And so that's what this picture depicts, that it is not, we are, we basically, things are not equitable. And once we can get to that place of realizing that, um, and I'll tell you a little bit more about equity-mindedness and what this means, it becomes very important for us to basically ask ourselves the question, you know, do exclusionary practices exist here in this particular institution, on the Dartmouth College, in the community as well? And if they are, what can we do about it and what's our responsibility for it? Not saying that we're responsible for it, meaning that we cause them, but if we are clear that they do exist, you know, what is our role as people within this institution? And I'm talking at all levels because we all have a part. How can we basically identify those exclusionary practices? And then what's our role and what's our responsibility in basically attracting that? And it happens at all levels. You know, where do we see those sorts of things? And it's been published in our literature even. And so this is just a table of the typical challenges that are faced in by historically underrepresented groups in medicine and biomedical sciences. That's my term, it's not that, right? Because it's more of an inclusive term to bring in a whole lot of folks that ultimately have talked about many and many of these. And more commonly when we look at, you know, the question is how come you can't diversify your particular um, workforce here? The common thing that we say is, well, you know, we just don't have minority faculty here and that, that's the problem. Or we don't, they don't have role models here, and that's why they basically overlook us at this point. But I also want to point you to something else that sometimes we don't pay attention to. Because my talk today is really, the, I think, the focus that we really need to think about and go a deeper dive in is about our institution. As a diversity dean, I felt very hypocritical at times, because I could bring, and I could be the best recruiter in town and bring people to the door, whether it was faculty, whether it was students. But the hypocrisy was just the, the environment, the hostile environment that they would experience when they were there. In academia, we do have this environment in which, again, we got you here. Be proud that we got you here. You are at a prestigious institution. So good luck. Sink or swim, publish or perish, and you know, our phrases go on. And it's this instilled culture that we know about. As I look around the audience, there's nodding heads. But those are the exclusionary practices that we're also talking about that we need to begin looking at. These exist such things as microaggressions, daily microaggressions for some, mistreatment, abrasive behavior, harassment that we see that is being reported at our health institutions as well. And again, not forgetting about racial bias as we start seeing racial bias not only in the classroom but at the bedside, even by our patients towards us 
we're beginning to see it, especially with this last couple of years where people have feel that they have permission to be outspoken, um, to tell people what they really feel and think. But this leads to some danger, and it leads to a couple of dangers that are really important that, again, I think about the isolation and marginalization of sort of our individuals, that ultimately, instead, because of the system that we have in place, that they'll be complacent. They're fearful of retribution and judgment, and so they'll step back and they'll isolate themselves and marginalize themselves. And ultimately, the problem with that is the things that are associated with that, and what tends to happen is usually mental health disorders, depression, and sometimes even suicide. Burnout is kind of the new word it's in town that we've been talking about, that we're fearful of that as we burn out our faculty, our students, and our residents even before they reach their goals for that. Then there's stereotypes threat and imposter syndrome. You know, these are things in which people and, and stereotypes threat and imposter syndrome is not just limited to race and ethnicity and minorities. It's everybody in this room at some time in their life has experienced stereotypes that or even imposter syndrome. I don't belong here, I don't fit. You know, the things, the assumptions that we make ourselves about ourselves that. So I say we haven't done a really good job in, being, in being, taking a look at this, and I'm just trying to call out a call to action that I think it's time. I think of anything that I've learned over this last couple of years is that it's time to call it out, speak the truth, but more importantly, it's not the blame game, it's more about what can we do in order to basically change our culture and climate so that we can basically help our faculty and our students thrive, but also the staff who take care of our faculty and staff also thrive as well. This is an article that was written by Julie Shane, who's a faculty member at the University of Washington, and I was really intrigued with this in the sense of this concept of emotional labor. And what this concept is about is that there's some faculty that are out there that always have open-door policies, and students know it, Early career faculty know it. They know whose door to knock on, who's willing to drop anything you're doing, whether it's writing a grant, writing a manuscript. They're willing to drop everything to be that listening ear. But these people are so valuable because they're kind of the canary in the cage, so to speak. Because if you look at the last line, through our listening, we hear how our institutions are failing to meet the needs of minoritized and traumatized students. And I would even add faculty, and I would even add staff. They're there with that listening ear, and it's an emotional labor that tolls on them as well. And the spirit of thinking about burnout and trying to keep our faculty fresh, you know, these are people that basically are sacrificing their time, pouring out their empathy and compassion, but also don't get rewarded for it. And we know who those people in this room are. You know who you are, because we also know that it's an unequal imbalance of who takes us on and who doesn't take that on as well. But we also know that, again, we know that essentially institutional climate is also important to our accrediting bodies. So if what I just showed you is not enough, you know, we are demanded by our accrediting bodies to begin looking at this a little bit closer. LCME has got 3.5 on the learning environment that really talks about we must have a learning community that basically provides respect, not only just for medical students, and that's why I said faculty and staff as well, but also you have to have evaluations in place to kind of measure that climate on an ongoing basis as well. It goes further with element 3.6, specifically talking about mistreatment, that every school must have in place, as well as our teaching hospitals, in place mechanisms that if harassment, if abrasive behavior, if sexual harassment is happening, that you have things in place to investigate it, call it out, but also bring on the consequences due to those violations as well. 
It sounds great by policy, but the problems that we're having as you begin looking at this, this is just an example of the latest 2018 graduate questionnaire that all fourth-year medical students fill out. And when we look at mistreatment, and we look at question number 40 that says, have you personally experienced harassment? And we also, they've excluded in this particular question being publicly humiliated, being publicly embarrassed, because that's what quickly sometimes people say, well, they're just being too sensitive. This is frank harassment, abrasive behavior, sexual misconduct, abusive behavior, doing sexual favors, sorts of stuff in our institution. 42% of our graduating fourth year classes at all institutions across the United States say, yes, I have experienced it. This is the reality. And we can no longer shun it or not pay attention to it because if you look, it hasn't changed much. In 2014 through 2018, well, that's only a few people, right? No, that's 15,357 fourth year students Remember, each class is about 21,000 seats. And when you ask, well, who are the perpetrators? Who are the folks that do this? Who would do this this kind of a thing as well? Well, clerkship faculty, I'm not here to diss the clinical faculty. I'm just, we need to know where to begin and, and where's, where is the work and where is the help needed and the assistance. We find that clinical faculty, again, at 20.8%, and it's on the rise if you look at that again. Our residents, that's about 16%. 5% as well. What's not depicted here when you look a little bit further and disaggregate the data, student-to-student -student mistreatment is up at 6.2%, and that's changed over the last year. And so when you ask the question again, what about, do you know about policies? We've done a great job in telling people about policies and procedures, and it shows, yeah, 97.5% of our students say, yeah, we know about the policies, and we know about how to report this sort of thing. But when you ask them the question, so did you? If you were a victim of these behaviors, how many reported it? And only 22.2% in 2018 said they reported it. And that has been pretty consistent along the board since 2014 as well. And when you ask them, why didn't you report it? And the things, and this is why I'm bringing up institutional culture and climate is so critical for us. And that is, they said, number one, a lack of trust in the system. 38% of them said, because I didn't think anything would be done about it. That's just the culture here. And number two is that I'm fearful that if I say anything, it's going to jeopardize my further career. I'm worried about retribution here. And that's not any different when you start looking at faculty or coach surveys, the faculty forwards are now called standpoint. You know, I would even bet you if you begin looking at Ombuds reports, when my experiences at the institutions I was at, it was so interesting how the, the reporting and mistreatment was consistent across the board at all levels as well. But if you have that information, the important piece is about, you know, people hate doing surveys because they don't ever see action from it. They even call it something, they call it survey fatigue. And it's up to an institution, it's when you have the information, you must act on it if you want to keep great faculty, great students, great residents, and also great staff that serve you as well. ACGME doesn't have a requirement yet with regards to mistreatment as very, with clarity, but they do have policies in place that basically have said that ultimately if, if this occurs, you must have a process in place that the residents and fellows um, can basically also identify it and voice their complaints. 
Also, that comes to help is human resources because as, as residents and fellows are employees, they can ultimately there should be institutional policies and procedures that are there. But residents are not also safe from this as well. This is a report done by Finesse who did a comprehensive review of the literature and published this in academic medicine not too long ago. And basically, it's the prevalence of medical student and resident mistreatment. If you look at this closely, I'm sorry for the busy slide, we have another column. The first column basically it tells you how many studies that they basically found in their comprehensive review. Um, and so S stands for student, R stands for resident. Um, and then the sampling size of uh, the collective studies that they have. So they identified 59 studies uh, collectively that has ever been published in this area. And the thing I'm just going to point out is that a high percentage of our, of our residents have basically said, yes, we've been a victim of harassment as well. 63.4% of those. And if you go down the line a little bit, you'll find that gender discrimination is also the second highest. That's 66.6% have voiced that they have that. So why is this all important? It's important because now we have literature that tells us this is the ramifications from this that we must pay attention to our institutional climate. There's a higher rate of poor emotional and mental health outcomes, including rise in alcoholism depression and even suicide that we see in our medical students and residents due to mistreatment that are on institutional campuses. There's a higher incidence of post-traumatic stress disorder. And now that we've been talking about it from after the National Academy of Science, Engineering and Medicine has come out, after doing a workshop just on wellness, resilience and burnout, we're also seeing burnout in our residents in that. And that becomes important because from the NASM report, we know that more than 50% of U.S. physicians report significant symptoms for burnout. And even when you compare to other industry, we're two times as likely as physicians basically to suffer burnout. And what does it lead to? It leads to a high rate of suicide, twice the normal population that's out there as well. And it's not just physicians, it's nurses as well. And again, so thinking that it's not just physicians, this starts early on. And I think we have an obligation early on to work upstream find out the root cause analysis that, and begin looking at our institutions to find out how are we contributing to this and are there exclusionary practices to do that. Secondly, I think the other thing that becomes very important is the fact that it's not just personally how it in, impacts us, it also impacts the institution because there's some new, there's some data out from Shanna Fountain Noseworthy that says, you know, this also affects patient safety, we're starting to see now. So when you have burned out people that are taking care of our patients, there's basically becoming a rise in decreased quality of care that's being provided, an increase in medical errors, things that our administrators are very concerned about, decreased patient satisfaction, decreased productivity and professional effort, and a high physician turnover. So let's turn the notch up a little bit at a more positive angle. There's another reason we need to pay attention to. We have a new, I've been on the Holistic Review Committee since 2006 uh, when we started helping admissions committees to start thinking of a different way and a different approach to diversify the workforce through holistic admissions. And what we found is we have a new genre of students coming through. Now they're residents and we need to wake up to the fact that they have different desires and needs and they're frustrated with us. We're frustrated at the glacier speed of how things change. There are important things from because they come to us with an amazing slate. I look at myself and getting to medical school today, I probably wouldn't compared to looking at 
what we're seeing come to the door because they've already had interest in social determinants of health, social justice. They've already been working with underserved populations. They already understand population health. They already understand disparities. A lot of them have done community service. They said 70% of incoming students now, today, have a plethora of community service uh, amongst them. Some have already have experience in global health, some experience already in community health and public health. Um, and what we find with them too, they're resilient, they're compassionate, they're empathetic, they're very adaptable, although some faculty think that they're not. But they're also, they know how to persevere, they know how to overcome barriers and challenges, but they also have a cultural intelligence. They understand why diversity and inclusion is important, and they're stifled when they see that many of the faculty, many of our leaders really don't quite grasp that concept. Um, and so the questions to any institution are, are these that I posted here is that, you know, you've got to ask yourself, you know, how does your institution accommodate the desire of the generation of learners? We want a learning environment in which you don't wipe their slate clean. How do you continue to help them thrive along this particular other elements that they bring to the table other than their academic prowess? How do they become our future healthcare providers, and how do we continue not to extinguish the flame, but also brighten the flame even more? You know, does the institution have building capacity to address any of the shortfalls? And if you have a shortfall, what do you do about it, even if you don't have it in Hanover? Do you have connections and building relationships with other institutions where the students can get that expertise that they're really dying to have? You know, does the institution have the political will to really change the paradigm? And how does the institution hold itself responsible and more importantly accountable to become an effective institution uh, for the learners? If you just ask the students and we listen, they're telling us what they want. They've already discovered without a doubt that racism is a public health issue and must be addressed and we as health professionals are responsible. Racism and myth in academic medicine also exists. And again, they scripted us for this, what they would like us to do you know, with our curriculum. And this is not just students. I even think about residency as well, even with the new core requirements coming up, and also thinking about the Clare Pathways 5 and 6 that are talking about, you must talk about health disparities and teaching our residents what their role is in doing that. Students have said, we want a national medical student curriculum that basically includes to help us understand the history of how racism was built in medicine, structural racism, institutional racism, but more importantly, how can we, what's our role in undoing it? What can we do as future physicians to advocate about an uh, unconscious racial bias and medical decision-making? How do we change that? How do we approach that? How do we begin even talking about that? And more importantly, they want to, how do we dismantle some of the structural racism that basically we've been experiencing? And it goes on with a recent report that just recently came out by the Students of White Coats for Black Lives. And this is called the Racial Justice Scorecard. They took 10 particular institutions who are willing to basically be evaluated by their students, judged on 15 different metrics from curriculum to diversity to policing to just a number of things that were there and gave the schools a grade about where they were. Not in the sense of saying bad, 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 but in the sense of saying, we need you as partners to help us basically begin mitigating some of the challenges that we are living through our lived experiences of that institution. And so this is basically that first place. Nobody likes to get a report card. 
But what helped with that report got is important to begin helping us look in that mirror to ask our, to tell ourselves what do we need to do. And so I'll end with this piece that I think the next generation of work for diversity is really doing a deeper dive and looking at our learning and workplace environment. And I mention them together because our students, not just the learning environment, they experience our workplace environment. And remember, our staff is usually almost that first contact that our students have when they have an issue. And so our staff also deserve professional development to understand how do I mitigate some of the issues and problems? How do I talk about it? How do I deal with it when they come to me? And they're kind of checking this out with me first when I want to guide them in the right place. I want to talk a little bit about it. How do we become an equity-minded academic health center? And how do we basically take this deeper dive that I'm talking about? And then reaching the promising practices that some institutions are starting to reach, inclusion excellence. And I was, I was happy to hear about the Inclusion Excellence Initiative that Dartmouth College has taken on over the last year or so that they're continuing to work on. But the important question, how does that basically also dovetail and disseminate and the ripple effect of that to the School of Medicine, but also to the health center here as well? So in short, what an equity-minded institution is, it's pretty basic. It's an institution where everybody student, faculty, administrator, leadership, staff, have the opportunity to attain their full potential. And no one is disadvantaged from achieving that potential because of their social position or group identity or any other social determinant. When I talk about this, the wheel represents, and it's kind of pale here, but again, what we're talking about when we talk about opportunity, this is not a handout. It's not frequently how this is interpreted. This is about opportunities that everybody in this room, regardless of your race and ethnicity, your skin color, or your social identity, it's that these are opportunities such as job opportunities, educational opportunities, advancement opportunities, salary equity, um, professional development, personal development, but it also includes things like health and housing and those sorts of pieces. And there may be things that we can't touch, but there are certain, there's the major things on this wheel, and it doesn't meant to be all-inclusive, but gives people the idea that it's this whole idea that if I'm an equity-minded institution, that I'm conscious that if I'm going to keep the best talent here and attract the best talent, that I want to create a new culture that ultimately is equity-minded in, in place in which everybody has this opportunity to attain it. A lot of this work comes from the Association of American College and Universities, and I applaud them because in 2015 they said, we're going to take equity on on an educational stream, so we're going to look at educational equity. And I think there's a lot that we can learn as medical educators you know, along the line of what they brought up. Um, this is called Step Up and Lead for Equity, uh, what higher education can do to reverse our deepening divides. And if you're a medical educator, show of hands, have any of you read this or seen this yet? Because this is a must-read for any medical educator in this room or anybody that's involved with our with teaching residents and wealth. So let me just kind of cover what it talks about. They talk about what does it mean to be equity-minded. And when you talk about looking at these specifics, it basically here are the five things they talk about uh, with equity-minded practices. And that is there's a willingness to review the data on student outcomes and disparities at all educational levels, disaggregated by race and ethnicity, as well as social economic status and gender and sexual orientation. The recognition that individual students are not responsible for the outcome. We commonly will blame our students. You don't try hard enough. You're not studying hard enough. Without the recognition is that we have a dysfunctional educational system out there. And some 
benefit from an educational system, that I've had lots and lots of opportunities as depicted by the student on the very far left, but it's not equal across the board. And you know this by zip code. You know where in your state you can go, that ultimately you know those educational opportunities are not available for them. Yet we're bringing in students from these areas, and again, I think our role because we see the other values and potential that these future physicians are going to have, it's our role to adjust our institution to provide those sorts of pieces, and that's what this is about. It's about respect the aspirations and the struggles that students are not, not well served, and the belief in fairness that allocating additional resources to some students further than others who have greater needs becomes important so that we're all working on an equal plane. And then there's a deliberate intention to address and eliminate some of these entrenched biases assumptions, stereotypes, and discrimination that exists in our institutions as well. So can we as medical you know, educators, can we adopt this as well? And so I'm saying I think we can. We have to change our mindset a little bit than how we already do things at this juncture. But I think we have the collective intelligence, the know-how to be able to pull this off. And so I'm here to basically try to encourage you all to begin thinking in these terms that what an equity-minded educator, medical educator would be is somebody who essentially proactively educates themselves on the historical context of exclusionary practices. How did we get here? Why is it here? I'm not responsible for it, but I am responsible that if I do recognize an exclusionary practice that happens, that I need to respond to it. We talking about Acosta. Let me give you one example of an exclusionary practice that we're complacent with. I've been a medical student that I really, all my life, I've been preparing myself to go into ophthalmology. I've done everything. I've done the research. I've even co-authored some papers. I've done everything my mentor has told me along the way. I have hours that I've spent with ophthalmologists in trying to meet this career. But then I take this test called step one, and I don't meet the numerical value that the ophthalmology residencies are looking for to screen me in or screen me out. And so now my advisor says, hey, you ever thought about being a primary care physician? Right? And we know that because it happens. And so that is an exclusionary practice that we must look at, mitigate, and change it if we're ultimately going to move forward because I personally feel it's unfair to that student that we have failed them in that sense. Yeah, we can blame the student for not doing well on that test, but we also need to look inwardly and ask ourselves, how were we ineffective for that student not scoring what they needed to do on that sort of piece as well? So this is really trying to understand that and continue asking ourselves, how do exclusionary practices happening here? Secondly, how do we reject this ingrained habit of blaming these inequities on our students that come from different social and cultural backgrounds? The tattoo we put on them so we're no matter where they go, they face it, and it impacts them as well, and it impacts their academic performance and even their thinking. We recognize that equity-minded leaders and educators recognize that if we're going to eliminate any of these entrenched biases, these values, these norms that exist that ultimately make it a, a, an environment that is not a conducive to learning, it's going to require intentionality, and it's going to require a critical deconstruction of looking at our structures, our governance, looking at our policies and how we do things, looking at our embedded institutional norms and values and saying that are soon to be race neutral, and ask ourselves, how can we change this? Again, getting away from the blame, but just simply asking ourselves, how do we begin looking at this? 
it does require a systematic transformation. There's no doubt. We have to do some systems-based thinking to ask ourselves, how can we do this? And how can we move towards what the AACU talks about in the sense of holding us accountable for our effectiveness for student successful outcomes and resident outcomes, I'd have to say, as well. And moving more towards this investment model. Lastly, about how do we invest time, equity-minded leaders and educators invest time, but also the political will. They're willing to take this risk to basically begin addressing what is not being addressed and how to mobilize an institution. But also don't forget our community partners. You have a community here that has an idea about how they feel about DH, of how they feel about Geisel School of Medicine. Never forget the community partners that we have pushed out wherever our anchors institution has set in. Because mind you, we have pushed people and communities outside of the communities that we exist in sort of thing. And communities have memory for this. But they're also resilient in the sense that they also want to help. And how can they be better partnered for us to be able to reach this? This is just a, a colleague of mine that I thought put it really interesting about what equity was. He says, you know, equity is, you know, it's not a stopgap, it's a journey. But it involves the sacrifice of sharing of power, not just the doling out of privilege. Says, we all have to contend with creating and sculpting a way to bring equity to life in our work and in our lives and in the lives of others, meaning patients. So we talked about, there's been a plethora of of literature out there over the last 20 years about, about diversity, that it's more than numbers, that it leads to stronger innovation, creativity, better complex problem solving, uh, and better prediction as well. There's, there's no question about it anymore, but yet I still find people questioning the validity of diversity and why is this a big deal. But I'm also here to say that diversity is not enough, because the benefits of diversity there are never going to be seen if you don't have an institutional climate that is inextricably linked to diversity. The benefits will not be leveraged. The benefits will not be seen if you don't have an institution that embraces differences, that also allows it to be very visible, very embraced, but more importantly, leveraged. Remember, everybody in this room has differences. And we learn those differences from our lived experiences, whether it was a prior workplace, where we went to school, where we grew up. We all bring talent to that particular table. So at its very most basic, at its most basic definition, this is written by Howard Ross, who's done a lot of work in this area, wonderful book called Reinventing Diversity. Um, and basically, he just, he, he describes an inclusive environment in this way. He says, you know, it creates opportunities for everybody in that organization to feel like they're a fabric, a fundamental fabric of the institution. This is just that basic premise that everybody wants to feel valued and validated what they bring to the table, regardless of skin color. It's the reality is that we need to feel that we belong, but we also, the goal is really to ensure that people from all backgrounds, not just those from a, a limited background, you know, are fully integrated and not marginalized, that they're fully engaged, and also that they're fully empowered and not diminished. This is a wonderful work done by um, uh, an outfit, an organization called Equality and Human Rights Commission in 2010, who's done a lot of work in looking at the benefits of inclusive environment, what's that about. And I think they summarize their most basic definition through this about um, it's an environment where one is treated with dignity and respect, 
where the talents and the skills of different groups are valued and where productivity and customer service improves because the workforce is happier, they're more motivated, and they're more aware of benefits that inclusion brings. And I'll share those in just a second. So this is an institution of excellence as much as our academic institutions. And so I'm saying let's go beyond what the typical definition is and aim higher for inclusion excellence. And so we have created one of the most common questions that I got when I was doing a lot of consultative work before I came to the AAMC, and now that I visit schools is that everybody's bought into the scope about the value of diversity. But where they're stymied is how do we, how do we even begin? What are the benchmarks that we can basically bend uh, to, that are in place that we can follow that would be our roadmap or our guideposts? So recently, over the last year, year and a half, we developed a set of nine benchmarks to help institutions and medical schools and teaching hospitals as kind of a guide for them. Um, and they're listed here. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail with it, but some of here's kind of a summary page of what it is. And this is about being intentional. Practicing conscious inclusion is about intentionality, that you understand that diversity is a strategic imperative that basically is interwoven through everything that you do on campus. But more importantly, what an inclusive environment is it's one that basically allows people to be authentic. Everybody in this room has multiple identities. You're not just a doctor, not just a nurse, you're not just a student. You know, I'm not just brown, I'm not just a father, I'm not just a professor, I'm an ex-professor, I'm not just a chief diversity officer, I'm a carver, I'm a musician, I'm a community member. You know, all those identities intersect because they basically help me see the world in a different way. And they impact how we think about the world. They impact how we see you they impact the decisions I make, and you're no different. And so intersectionality and the value of that becomes very important within an environment like yours so that ultimately people can feel that they can be true to who they truly are without being judged for it. That requires a safe, but not just a safe environment, but a brave environment, to create brave spaces, meaning that I don't even want to say so I can share my voice, but I want to make sure that I'm not judged, there's no retribution, and it does take courage to do this as well. That's what an inclusive excellence environment is all about, where everybody feels validated for who they are, they feel valued, and they basically not feel respected, and their dignity is not violated. Mistreatment violates and takes away our dignity. And everybody in this room, through our lifespan, at one time or another, our dignity has been threatened. So we, this is a value that we all know as humans. The sense of belonging is a critical piece of this as well. Wouldn't you, don't you want to work at a place where you feel you belong? Or don't you also want your colleagues to feel like they belong as well? And they're not struggling, but they equally feel that they belong just like you do. This is not fit. Belonging is different in the sense of, ultimately, I want to contribute, I want to be part of this fundamental fabric because I have something to say and I also have other talents that I brought to this place. Don't box me into the position I got hired for because I've, my lived experiences at other workplaces, other institutions that I may have taught at, I bring value to this table. Even if I come from a different race and ethnic community, I bring that value to the table to help you understand how to become culturally intelligent, flexible, and adaptable to who you're seeing as well. It's this notion that ultimately to practice uh, inclusion excellence also is this investment in success, not only in our students and not only in our faculty, but also in our staff that take care of our faculty and staff. I think I've said that three times now. 
Last but not least, none of this matters unless you have an accountability system in place to hold even our highest leaders, but also to help hold each one of you accountable for this, because this is not just your diversity officer's job. They have the content expertise to help you reach it, but it's our job, each of our individual jobs, to basically take a responsibility for any DNI effort that is there as well. So if interested, again, we've created a toolkit um, that basically goes over the nine benchmarks and describes them in full detail. We have actually an assessment that goes along with it where you can test this. It's only a nine question assessment piece. It's not 119 questions and you know 15 pages of questions. And then we also have a scorecard. And the scorecard basically immediately tells you where do you think your unit is along this line of inclusion and excellence. I think this works much better at the departmental level or at the unit level as well. But where are you on this grid from no demonstrated commitment all the way to, no, we're demonstrating excellence in this area and we're pretty proud about it. With the scorecard and how the scorecard has been used at other institutions, that it will highlight those wonderful best practices you're doing that you will be willing to share to other departments. There's going to be some areas that some people are doing excellent work that we should be inquisitive and in saying, how did you get there and what are you doing and what can we replicate? But there's also some areas that need work and are deficits that really help guide your strategic plan to move in the right direction. So what about the benefits in doing all this work? It's been well published in the business literature and we have to be in the process that now as healthcare starts embarking on this, are we going to see the same? Because if you look at these benefits, they basically will trigger something for you because again, they're everything that we can relate to. What they found in order of, of what has come out from their literature, you know, from the, uh, from the uh, equal equality and human rights, is that they found when you reach inclusion and excellence, there's an increased commitment and motivation what that means for administrators and our HR folks, that means better employee engagement. My hope is that it also translates into better faculty engagement, student engagement, and staff engagement as well. And if you have that, people are willing to maximize their productivity because you've also tapped into the other talents. And that's what talent optimization is. That you're recognizing for other things that bring to the table and you're valuing that. And you're even asking me that. That's something that you're asking me when you, um, when you want to hire me. You know, what other things are you going to be contributing to us other than just what you're doing to the job description that you're applying for? That is rolled into a positive impact on job satisfaction. So that sense of belonging, that sense of validation becomes really prevalent. That leads to greater success and retention. That then leads to a better branding reputation that now you become a talent magnet. If DH, if Dysel is doing this and they've achieved this, I want to work for you. And I'm willing to even come across from the West Coast, being from California, to work for you because I love what you're doing and I love what you're aspiring to do. Everybody is living by this. And everybody feels authentic, validated, and you have accountability, and we all have accountability for it. Even without recruitment, they have also found that it increases diversity of the workplace because now we want to work for you. And all bars are held. The community basically also begins tied in because now they want to be your vendor. They love what you're doing because they see the workforce is now more representative of who they look like, but not just in your local area, but also think even wider regionally about who may want to use you. And most important piece is trustworthiness is gained and that becomes really important. So I'll end with this saying diversity without inclusion. This is a um, quote from an article written uh, by the co-president for the Center for Talent and Innovation named Laura Sherbin. 
Diversity without inclusion is a story of missed opportunities, of employees so used to being overlooked that they no longer share ideas and insights, and they leave. That means faculty, staff, residents may give up, students also may give up as well. But diversity with inclusion provides a potential mix of talent retention and engagement. So I'll leave you the question is, where does, where does Geisel and where does DH stand along these principles of inclusion excellence? You know, has your learner workplace environment achieved that? And so in summary, just kind of, again, I'm very visual, if you haven't figured that out by now. Let me put it together for you. You know, for a long time, we, we talked about diversity, you know, is the driver of excellence. I'm here to say that, you know, I think our further thinking on this is that it doesn't stop with diversity. Diversity is extremely important, but it's not only non-existent and non-beneficial unless you begin looking at the environment and how can you bring out these pro-benefits that and the bonuses um, that diversity brings. And so I believe strongly that diversity and inclusion excellence are a means to becoming this equity-minded institution that's there. And when you've gotten to that equity-minded institution, then I think you've achieved excellence. So in summary, um, I think, how do we rebuild that bridge even different than the one I showed you? And what's re how do you rethink what's possible here? You know, how can you basically get, if basically, like I've said, if ultimately, you've become an equity-minded leader, it's gonna be one that, even if I doubt the value of diversity, it's no different than the doubts that you may have about anything that you study or that you research. You do the homework. You find the right expertise to begin teaching you more about the value to understand it, especially in the work that you do. Because there's a plethora of literature out there, there's a plethora of studies, experience that say, even if you're field, even if you're a researcher, or even if you're a staff member, of how this can improve the institutional culture and climate. But it's time that we begin rethinking this and really looking how do we embrace and how do we value and how we look at the benefits that differences bring throughout at all levels. Don't wipe people's slates clean just based on their, because they're just a student. Because those students also bring a plethora of experiences from their prior work and what they've done before they became medical students as well. And it's time for us to really discover how diversity can contribute to, to excellence. And the last piece, I think, is just about practicing conscious inclusion. And that is about, conscious inclusion is pretty simple, and it's about how can you become intentional with getting there. Rhetoric is not enough. I think you basically have the rhetoric here, and it's a good rhetoric, it's a good mission. And now it's turning that rhetoric into actionable items that basically are deliverables that you can actually begin seeing that and measuring that about how you're, where you're going. This is continuous work. It's not going to happen overnight. It's hard. But I think now, as I mentioned, you do have the leadership in place that can help guide you, but they can't do everything for you. But they can actually bring out your talent. They can bring out and help you, you know, achieve this. Um, so I see that. I think in, in your new associate dean for diversity and inclusion that's here. So I would just urge all of us to really begin focusing in a different way and thinking about becoming equity-minded institution. There are leaders out there that basically understand this and they're just looking for the ability, the authority, but also the safety to base also to bring it to practice as well so that you can emerge as an equity-minded institution where people basically want to seek you out is they want to come here because of it. They want to come to Hanover because the institution
will teach me. The institution also believes in this, and it's going to be a great place to work, and I can be really proud of that. So with that, I'll finish up. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, David. I think because of the hour and knowing people have to get off to other things, we're going to do question and answers up here and meet David up here. I want to thank you for raising our awareness and for giving us some tasks ahead to do a better job. Thank you so much. Thank you.